Good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and to Live in the Studio, where once a month we indulge in all things TV, past and present. My name is Anna and tonight I am delighted to be here, largely because at this exact moment last week I was in a TV bar in a small town called Vang Vien in Laos. In this bar they play on repeat, day in, day out, friends. And in the next bar to this TV bar, they also play friends. And so on and so forth, all the way up the street and into the mountains. So a night devoted to zombie TV seems the perfect remedy for a regretful evening. With two sold-out sessions, we have the panel of the living dead back. And I'm as curious as you are to see what they're going to whip out. Intermittently throughout the session, you'll get to flex your own zombie prowess to win DVD sets of dead sets with special thanks to Madman Entertainment. The session is being recorded, so we ask that you turn off your mobile phones and when it comes to the Q&A, that you wave your hand in the air so we can hand you a microphone. Now, I'd like to introduce you to our chair for the evening, Dr Sage Walton. Dr Sage teaches in the Screen Studies Program at the University of Melbourne and is Assistant Curator with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Sage collaborated on ACME's permanent exhibition, Screen Worlds, the story of film, television and digital culture. Her work on genre, aesthetics, embodiment and film and TV history appears in the contemporary comic book superhero, Playing with Memory, the films of Guy Madden, Lounge Critic, The Couch Theorist Companion, Senses of Cinema, Screening the Past, Artlink and Metro. And now, Dead Set Zombie TV. Thank you, Sage. Thanks, Anna. Okay, well, welcome all to Dead Set, the zombie TV panel. Each of our panellists is going to um, talk for around 15 minutes um, and talk through some kind of images, and we've got lots of fun clips and stuff to show you as well. And then hopefully we'll wrap up, depending on time, around about an hour, and we're going to have, like, the Q&A session then. So... Um, because it's sold out, I'd ask you to hold off on your questions until that time. And there'll be um, microphones kind of roving around. And we have audiovisual entertainment DVDs to give away. So something to look forward to. All right, so on our big and our small screen, zombies have pretty much come to signal the end of the world as we know it. So maybe there's some voodoo kind of spell at work. Maybe there's an alien space probe that's broadcasting a weird signal to Earth. Maybe there's a secret government slash military slash elite corporate initiative at work. Maybe, even as um, Deadset suggests, it's the adverse effects of Wi-Fi on our brains. Or maybe, um, according to George Romero, there's just no more room in hell, so the dead have to walk the earth. Who knows? Either way, Z-Day, or the Zompocalypse, is coming. And we, on this <laughs> panel, want you to be prepared. So... If we're going to survive the zombie apocalypse, we need to know what to expect. When this happens, are we going to be dealing with the newly dead come to life or with the living who just appear dead? And can we extend that to include the zombie labour of dead-end jobs? Are we, are we to expect shuffling zombies or the pissed-off kind that move at a lightning speed? Is the cause of the undead a viral infection or is it voodoo? And crucially, perhaps for all of us, in this battle on Z-Day, are we going to be dealing with those flesh-eating and brain-craving zombies? Well, 
Not necessarily so. Zombies aren't always flesh eaters, as you'll be hearing tonight on our panel discussion as we move through the history of the zombie and the shifting conventions of zombie TV, film and media. So the best place to start is, I guess, what the um, panel is titled after, Dead Set, Charlie Brooker, the English satirist's TV series. So spoilers here. Um, when the zombie apocalypse hits in this TV series, and it's definitely the cannibal kind, the safest place to be in Britain is inside the Big Brother house. And here, the housemates seem to be the only ones unaware of the outbreak. Interestingly, Deadset was also produced by Endemol, who are the um, production company behind Big Brother, maybe in an attempt to kind of get people to watch Big Brother again. Um, now, once you get over its zombie kind of reality TV premise, which is particularly kind of brilliant, there's one sequence where they're battling the zombies and they enter the Big Brother house, but everyone in the house thinks that they're an intruder, which is kind of... Um, <laughs> completely gore-covered, but whatever. Oh, my God, you're an you know, intruder. She's weird. Anyway, but um, Dead Set, interestingly, follows fairly um, well-established zombie film conventions. And here I'm thinking of the Romero tradition in particular. So while Dead Set features fast-moving zombies, Brooker stated that that decision was needed to keep the pace whipping through um, five relatively short TV episodes. So this raises a kind of question, I think, that we can debate in Q&A and some of the other panellists are going to bring up. Does the nature of the medium, whether it be TV, film, computer games or so on, alter how we play out our zombie end-of-the-world scenarios? Now, the creators of Dead Set clearly know their zombie, um, and particularly Romero zombie lore, um, and there are direct kind of references to Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead in it as well. And they deliberately play upon that association. In particular, they play upon Romero's use of zombies as social critique. And in this mode, the zombie outbreak gets used to satirise the very worst about ourselves in a both individual and collective sense. So instead of something like the consumerist or shopping zombies of Romero's Dawn of the Dead, we're confronted with the zombie-slash-coma TV viewers of Dead Set. When the apocalypse comes, <laughs> I'd hate to think that the only thing on air or on TV is the Big Brother live feed, but that means it's just me. Um, now, the characters of zombie films spend most of their time looking for a fortified space or locking themselves away, whether that be in abandoned houses, cellars, attics, shopping malls, perhaps dollhouses, only to then turn upon each other. What better setting for a zombie TV series then than the Big Brother house, where reality TV contestants are not supposed to get along and start tearing each other to pieces, in this case, quite literally. Um, Dead Set's setting of the Big Brother house, where the camera-run spaces behind the walls become blood and gore-soaked corridors, actually taps into quite a long-standing tradition of um, post-60s horror um, and post-60s zombie horror. And that's the horror of the familial and the familiar and the everyday. So thanks to Romero, who was greatly influenced by Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho of 1960 and The Birds 1963, zombie horror and um, the end of the world didn't have to take place in some far-off kind of exotic, mystical or otherworldly place like Transylvania. Horror was just as present in daylight, in the larger social order and within the family home. Dead Set returns to that um, Romero idea that the monster isn't simply among us but possibly is us. In fact, as Romero once remarked of his zombies, these guys are the neighbours... Um, 
except that they're neighbours who have actually come back to eat us. Um, continuing the horror of the everyday, Deadset suggests that the zombie outbreak isn't going to happen in some sort of special or extraordinary space. When Z-Day happens, it's going to happen by the office water cooler, by the photocopier, or as we watch TV, within ordinary everyday spaces. This brings me to another convention that I think um, Deadset plays upon from Romero, Splat Stick. I love that image, I just had to include it. Um, and particularly the later Romero of, of Dawn of the Dead in 1978. So Splatstick refers to that specific combination of horror and physical comedy that can also mark the zombie subgenre. Because zombies can be hilarious as well as horrifying. And in Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which I'm going to show you a clip of in a minute, zombies get hit in the face with cream pies and squirted with water bottles. The living dead actually become a slapstick routine. The splat stick of Deadset also involves um, this kind of gross-out humour and gory special effects, particularly when the vile um, TV producer gets literally disemboweled, torn apart, eaten. And this involves graphic scenes of evisceration, gutting and cannibalism that also, I think, work to, to provoke our um, uncomfortable kind of laughter as much as our revulsion. Um, so by merging horror with comedy, Splatstick elicits some of our most basic gut-level responses that mark the zombie um, film and TV, belly laughter, fear and disgust. Now let's take a quick look at one of the less gory and graphic scenes from Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Um, Simon, can we play that now? But no one more question. The first question is always, are these cannibals? No, they're not cannibals. Cannibalism in the true sense of the word implies an interspecies activity. These creatures cannot be considered human. They prey on humans. They do not prey on each other. That's the difference. They attack and they feed only on warm human flesh. Intelligence? Seemingly little or no reasoning power, but basic skills remain a more remembered behaviors from uh, normal life. There are reports of these creatures using tools, and even these actions are the most primitive. The use of external articles as bludgeons and so forth. I might point out to you that even animals will adopt the basic use of tools in this matter. These creatures are nothing but pure, motorized instinct. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. They must be destroyed on sight. Okay, there you have it. Including a definition of zombies that perhaps we can debate. Um, so while the zombies of Dawn of the Dead are inherently funny as they're going about, they're kind of like... Um, remembered actions. I think what this um, clip in particular shows us is that they're also um, tragic figures, and I could hear Marty going, oh, in the background there. Um, for me, there's something that's innately mechanical um, about zombies, because they're doomed to just endlessly repeat the actions and gestures from their former lives. So maybe the opposite of being um, animated and lively isn't actually being undead, it's becoming completely automated. Um, and in this sense, zombies and robots actually share quite a lot in common. So maybe Joss Whedon's dollhouse with its programmable humans 
is right on track in this regard. So zombies speak to a kind of existential horror for us. And at the end of the day, is ending up as an empty shell or husk of a person maybe even more scary than being eaten by one? Um, now, someone who's definitely not an empty husk or shell of a person is our next panellist. <laughs> um, the lovely... Yeah, that was a good segue. Lovely Alexandra Helen Nicholas, who is a horror film historian and PhD candidate in cinema studies at La Trobe University. She's completing her thesis on microhistory and paracinematic horror. Her other research areas include sexual violence, ethics and aesthetics. Alex publishes regularly in both academic and non-academic film publications, and she's also writing a book on the rape revenge film. Alex. Beautiful. Let me... Appropriate. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that amazing introduction, Sage. Um, as Sage just mentioned, I'll be talking about uh, zombie history. Um, History, uh, horror film history, and I guess history in general for me is a really interesting, an interesting thing to think about because it's surprisingly never neat. History isn't as kind of tidy as we would perhaps be more comfortable thinking that it is. Um, one thing about zombies that people often say to me is, you know, well, what do you think now that zombies are becoming more political? And my answer to that is zombies have always been political. This is a long political history. It's impossible to talk about zombie history and not talk about politics. Um, so this, I guess, is the kind of angle that I'll be looking at from, for my little talk. Um, there is, I know that you guys are here. It's like a Thursday night. You've all been working all day. You kind of want to chill out. You've paid good money to be here. So if there's any chance that you may actually learn something, just as a little bit of alarm, the screen will flash red. Okay, if it does get a little, if it gets a little heavy, if it's going to get a little thinky, I'm just going to let you know, right? Haiti. <laughs> we can't talk about the history of zombies and not talk about Haiti. Um, voodooism, zombieism is a part of voodooism. Voodoo became an official religion in Haiti in April 2003. Um, Haiti is a country, and this is a gross, um, a gross understatement, um, as I guess anybody who watches the news would be aware. Haiti is a country that has not only been um, had a really crappy hand from Mother Nature, but also from Father Time. Um, Haiti was a French colony, and they gained uh, it was a slave colony, and they gained their independence in 1804 um, from the French. Um, French didn't deal so well with this. Um, so perhaps one of their automatic responses was to demonise local religion, to demonise indigenous practice. So the kind of popular Western idea, I guess, of voodoo um, and anything related to voodoo as being kind of like black magic or sorcery or kind of in league with the devil, it all stems from the colonial demonisation of liberated slaves equals not so cool. Not so cool. So we really have to keep a check of this stuff when we talk about voodooism and zombieism in particular um, in this kind of historical context. So these two people here um, are probably, in terms of uh, Western academia, they're probably the two um, most noted figures who have done research on Haiti, voodoo and zombieism. We have Wade Davis um, with the mullet and we have Zora <laughs> Neale Hurston who worked in the 30s. Now, Zora Neale Hurston... Um, is famous for a lot of reasons, but I really like her because she clearly doesn't like Wade Davis's mullet. Um, <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. Um, now, Wade Davis, um, he's an ethnobiologist. Ah, 
Uh, ethnobiologist. What do you do? I'm an ethnobiologist. <laughs> All right, Wade Davis, you wear that mullet. Um, he wrote a book called The Serpent and the Rainbow, um, which was made uh, into a film by Wes Craven in 1987, as I'm sure you're all aware. Um, he comes up with a couple of interesting discoveries in this book. Um, he talks about, first of all, his big kind of thing about zombies is that zombies aren't the living dead. It's actually living people made to appear dead, which might seem kind of neither here nor there, but when you think about it, it's actually a pretty big difference. Um, he also tells us something kind of interesting. He tells us how to make a zombie. So we've got Sage saying, okay, what are we going to do when the zombie apocalypse happens? I'm here to tell you, start your own. I'm going to tell you guys exactly how to make a zombie. It's a two-step process. The first thing we do is that we make a powder that consists of a chemical called tetrodotoxin, which you guys can all get from the puffer fish. Yeah, you can write that down. Tetrodotoxin. Um, you mix that up into a powder with the uh, skin of an indigenous Haitian toad. I'm not making that up. Um, and you administer that, and that actually sends the body into a state that appears deathly. Um, the next step is to mentally disassociate the person, so you administer a disassociative drug. Um, do I have to sign some kind of document to make sure that Acme is not liable <laughs> if people start turning each other into zombies? We'll um, cut so, it out later. Okay, cool. Uh, Datura. So you would actually administer a disassociative drug, so the person actually loses their connection to reality. So what we have here isn't a dead person who's come back to life, but we have somebody for all who for all intents and purposes is the living dead. Now, another useful thing that Wade Davis tells us is that there's two kinds of zombies. When we're talking, um, when we're talking about voodoo and we're talking about Haiti, um, uh, practitioners of, of voodoo, they really think of zombies meaning two things. The first one is what we know about um, bodies without souls, as we see here. Ray Martin, I'm talking to you. <laughs> bodies without souls. The other one that might seem a little strange to us is the opposite, is souls without bodies. <coughs> Um, we don't, that doesn't really fall into our kind of contemporary Western horror idea of what zombies are. But this film here actually tackles precisely this idea. If you haven't seen it, I really recommend it because it deals explicitly with, uh, with voodoo practices that's set in New Orleans um, and it deals exactly with this idea of bodies without souls versus souls without bodies. So when we talk about um, Frankenstein and Dracula and things like that, we're obviously talking about a pretty rich um, literary tradition. Zombies, not so much. Um, there was a book from 1929, a kind of really racist, crappy travelogue written by a guy called William Seabrook called The Magic Island, all about Haiti and voodooism and zombies, um, which kind of continued. The Americans had their own reasons for kind of continuing the French demonization of Haitian indigenous uh, religious practices. Um, I like to link it more to this guy, H.P. Lovecraft. Easy to remember, looks like a serial killer. H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft is an incredibly intelligent man. Um, he... he constructed a deeply com complex and sophisticated nightmare universe, the influence of which cannot be underestimated on contemporary horror. Um, his work has been adapted um, in a whole range of ways. And because I'm a trash bag, I actually searched for the, for the most insane and what I think he would feel is the most offensive example of his work possible. And I'm going to play that for you now. <laughs> this is from Beyond Reanimator. Yeah, it's fine. Oh. We're missing base. We're missing a channel. <gasps> what happened? 
Thank you, Dr. Reanimator. Mm. <laughs> All right, zombie film. First zombie film, 1932, Bela Lugosi, White Zombie. Um, as you can see here, probably the first thing you can see is, that's not a zombie, that's a lady with no top on. <laughs> right, zombies didn't become the kind of flesh-eating kind of monsters that we know until really around 1968, and I'll talk about that more shortly. Um, we had very different zombies um, earlier in, in cinema history. Um, they're not cannibals. They don't look like monsters. What we have here is a really beautiful woman. Um, zombies in this film, zombies in these kind of earlier films are actually kind of more concerned with these kind of earlier ideas of the kind of voodoo idea of zombie, uh, zombieism, but also um, mind control, mesmerism. We have a lot of um, often beautiful women um, being kind of controlled for sexual slavery. Um, and we obviously know that there's a kind of... The word slavery is kind of loaded when we start talking about, about zombies. Um, I, I think that um, probably the best way to describe these kind of early zombies is more like sonambulists, so almost more like sleepwalkers. Um, we see a similar thing in this film here, which uh, we were talking about before. is probably one of our favourite zombie films. This is um, I Walk With a Zombie, the Jacques Tournier, 1943. Um, and we see the same thing again here. Not a whole bunch of kind of brain-eating, flesh-peeling kind of stuff. Instead, we actually have a really beautiful woman who's just kind of a little bit out of it. Um, and the spooky, spooky, spooky hands kind of control, control. <laughs> so different things kind of happening here. Um, again, I mean, I, I sort of said it flagged at the start, the idea that history kind of does funny things. And often things that we think of as being really kind of crazy and new and postmodern, stuff has history. It's really simple. Stuff has history. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I know that you guys will be talking about that, but the origins of that in a funny way we can almost take back at least to this point um, because this film was um, very consciously a kind of remake of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Mm. Um, and, in fact, if we want to take that even further, we can think about um, Nazi zombies because I know that you guys always think about Nazi zombies because you kind of look like that kind of people to me. <laughs> um, 
Nazi zombies we think of as being such a, you know, outpost and dead snow and such a kind of crazy, random kind of, aren't we so modern and contemporary? We can find Nazi zombies back at the same time as this film, 1943, John Carradine in Revenge of the Zombies, um, creates an, an, an undead army to join the Nazi cause, as you do, um, which is really fascinating for me because the war was still going at this point. Hitler was kind of still alive. It's actually quite fascinating if you think about it from that perspective. Um, Unlike, <clears throat> unlike the kind of Dracula films and the Frankenstein stuff, um, the, the, these early zombie films didn't really take off. They actually weren't that massive. There's probably only about 10 or 12 um, zombie films across the 30s and 40s. They didn't get a huge amount of box office either. Um, some did, um, but most didn't. Primarily because, again, and I really reiterate this, they weren't special effects films. Zombies weren't flesh-eating monsters. They were these ladies. They were just kind of a little bit out of it. They also were really heavily... Um, loaded with this kind of really problematic kind of racial stuff. So we have here Bella Lugosi as the voodoo man, the kind of other, the racial other controlling our women. It's all a little bit kind of dodgy and kind of politically not so sure about this. Um, things start getting, I mean, things were kind of interesting. In the 50s we had, um, for those of you who are into things like Shaun of the Dead, in the 50s we had, um, we were talking before about Scared Stiff, the Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin film. Um, that has a zombie in it. Um, there was also zombies on Broadway. So we start getting pastiches already in the, in the 50s about zombies. Um, this film is a Hammer Horror film from 1966. Here we start to see a shift towards what we might now think of as zombies. Um, you can see even just in this poster, the kind of, they're looking more monstrous. Um, we start to see the kind of makeup and the flesh peely, peely, not looking so great uh, kind of thing happening. Even, again, from a political perspective, uh, kind of perspective, um, this is a really interesting film because it's about a guy who uses zombies to work in his tin mine. Now, at the time of this film's release, people at the time actually drew parallels between um, the story that was going on here and the, um, the kind of issues that were surrounding the Welsh coal miners um, in the 1960s, the really kind of quite diabolical kind of working conditions that these people had to work under. So these links were being made even at this period. 1968, along comes Barbara, everything changes. <laughs> Um, really can't underestimate the importance of this film, I think he's kind of putting it pretty lightly. Um, we have a couple of interesting ways of looking at this film, I guess from a, a kind of you know, historical, political perspective. Um, very difficult. I'm assuming most of you guys have seen this film. I'm not going to give you a spoiler if you haven't, but it um, linked very closely to the uh, American civil rights movement. Um, the story goes that uh, Romero was driving from Pittsburgh to New York with the finished film in the back of his car and he heard on the radio that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. This film really locks into a lot of stuff that was going on in the contemporary popular American imagination at that particular moment. Um, the film follows uh, a guy called Ben, a black guy, who um, he's got the kind of the, the zombies on the outside, the white zombies on the outside of the house that he's boarded up in there trying to kill him. He's got the crazy white people in the house to contend with. They're all nuts. What happens at the end of this film, I have to admit, and this is probably the wrong time to do it, I'm not a huge Romero fan of his latest stuff, but this film to this day, I, I can't think of anything that has the same impact. It's, it's really a remarkable ending, um, and it's almost, it's really difficult to separate that ending from this particular political context. But we can also think about um, this film in a different way, just in terms of pure zombie history. This is a moment of liberation for zombies. If we think about that kind of slave aspect to zombies, They've been fulfilling somebody else's wishes. Mm -hmm. Romero says, hey, guys, 
Live the dream. What do you want? Uh, brains? Go for it. Brains. It's all yours. Live the dream, fellas. Um, but he didn't say zombies. This famous thing about Night of the Living Dead doesn't actually use the word zombie. One of, how can it be that one of the most famous zombie films doesn't actually use the word zombies? Crazy. He actually based it on, or was inspired by, sorry, um, I Am Legend, uh, Richard Matheson's vampire novel. Um, and in the film, they don't call them zombies, they call them ghouls. Now, ghouls have their own separate cultural history. This is my favourite ghoul film. If you haven't seen it, you've got to go see Mr Sardonicus. It's awesome. William Castle. Um, ghouls are grave-robbing cannibals. Ah, starting to sound familiar? So they call them ghouls in the film. Now, ghouls have their own cultural history, and it's not just Western. Um, you can go back to at least the 10th century, and you can find mentions of ghouls in Tales of the Arabian Nights. So what we have here is not only a moment of liberation for the zombies, but we actually have a kind of new historical trajectory kind of kicking off. Um, so what we think of today as zombies, as the kind of, you know, the brains, brains, kind of flesh-eating cannibals, actually comes more from this stuff than it does the earlier kind of zombie films. All right. Now, it might seem weird to think about um, vampires and zombies being linked so closely, but I guess... Um, one of the greatest influences that I Am Legend in particular had from Night of the Living Dead and beyond is it's kind of um, really apocalyptic tone and that's something that's really picked up in Italian zombie films. I just put these two up because they're my favourites. Um, Italian zombie films are actually something kind of... I mean, they, they were really strongly... They kind of kicked off in the late 70s, early 80s and they have their own history um, that links very closely back to Night of the Living Dead. Uh, George Romero's done a lot of work in Italy. The Italians love him. Him and uh, Dario Argento have collaborated a lot. But even before Night of the Living Dead, Italians were really interested in cannibalism. Um, the Mondo films of the early 60s, kind of shockumentary kind of stuff, that, that stuff had a lot of cannibalism stuff in it. So it kind of had this, has this interesting trajectory of its own. Um, there's a whole bunch of ways that people have talked about the Italian zombie as being kind of different from the American zombie or the kind of Caribbean zombie. Um, one of the kind of ideas that I really think is quite interesting is um, in the 60s, we had Vatican II. So the Roman Catholic Church kind of thought, okay, let's, let's just chill out a little bit. Um, let's try to modernise a little bit. So they really loosened up a lot of censorship stuff in Italy. Um, so we started getting uh, non-exploitation films, sexy non-films. Um, we get some amazing kind of examples, sort of really strange things bubbling up in Italian popular cinema at this period, kind of horror and kind of softcore stuff. Um, and one of the ideas one of the arguments that I've heard that kind of explains the Italian love for zombie films is that in a funny way, it actually feeds back into this kind of Catholic kind of mindset in that it's reverse validation, um, in that how do we prove that the soul is sacred? Or how do we prove the sanctity of the soul? We just show bodies without souls. Here's what they look like. Oh, look, they're monsters. There's a kind of weird logic to it. It doesn't really... It sounds a bit strange, but it actually kind of makes sense. Um, so what this period leads into is this... I, I dedicate this slide to my, to my colleague, uh, Angela Nadalianis, who I believe in this very room, has gone on the record um, as a zombie pornographer. Um, <laughs> uh, she will talk more about disgust very shortly. I'm about to finish up. I just want to leave these up as long as I can. Awesome. Joe DiMarcio, he's, he's, he's the man. Um, just to finish up, it's a TV panel. So when I think of zombies and politics and TV, the first thing I think of is this. 
Joe, uh, Joe Dante's uh, episode of Masters of Horror mm. called Homecoming. I don't know if many of you guys have seen it. If you haven't, please chase it down. It follows a group... Uh, there's a phenomena where um, American soldiers who have been killed in Iraq are returning home as zombies. It takes them a while to figure out why, and they realise that, oh, they just want to vote George Bush out of office. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's actually quite an amazing thing. Mm. But when I think back to when I was a kid and the stuff that really scared me on telly, I think of things like the day after and threads. So nuclear holocaust stuff. And that really marked a lot of what scares me, I guess, as an adult. Um, it's kind of really wired into my brain. And watching something like Threads in particular, it's really amazing to look at how similar, not just tonally, but also aesthetically, and even narratively, how similar it is to something like Night of the Living Dead. If you watch these two back-to-back, it's actually quite remarkable how similar they are. So whether it's nuclear holocaust, zombie holocaust, we're actually dealing with some kind of common ground here. Enough with me. Angela's going to talk about filthy, <laughs> filthy things. Okay, thanks, Alex. I'll just introduce our next <laughs> panellist, <laughs> the infamous Angela Dalianis oh, from the last... Oh, <laughs> got too um, much to who is Associate Professor in Cinema Studies at Melbourne University. Uh, her research focuses on contemporary entertainment culture, media histories and cross-media collisions, with particular interest in their science fiction and horror manifestations. Her publications include Neo-Baroque Aesthetics and Contemporary Entertainment, MIT Press, and the contemporary comic book Superhero. Um, she's currently completing the book Spectopolis. Did I say that right? Spectopolis? Theme park cultures. Thank you, Ange. Thank you. Well, as uh, Alex has explained, since George Romero's Night of the Living Dead hit the screens in 1968, it spawned the popular Living Dead or zombie subgenre of horror cinema. And horror hasn't been the same since. Now, more recently, the Living Dead films have gone through an international renaissance. Um, there have been the remakes of the original trilogy. We've had Romero's own new trilogy, The Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and so on. The English productions that include 28 Days Later, directed by Danny Boyle, 28 Weeks Later, directed by Spanish filmmaker um, Juan Carlos Fresnadillo, uh, the Blind Dead series by the Spanish director Osorio, which involves um, Knights Templar group who come back as living dead and, and um, feast on the living. And in addition to this, we have Tokyo Zombie uh, by Japanese director um, Sakichi Sato. And that film actually shared the kind of dark humour and, and com- comic kind of humour um, that we find in Black Sheep, uh, the classic New Zealand film, uh, as well as the Australian film The Undead. So you see these films sort of... Uh, this phenomenon has actually sort of reached sort of global, global uh, proportions. It's sort of spread like the zombie disease. SARS Wars, Bangkok Zombie Crisis, was a Thai zombie film in which people were infected by a type 4 strain of the uh, SARS virus and turned into zombies. And even my people, the Greeks, got involved. <laughs> and they released their first zombie film in 2006. It was called Evil Tokako. And it's, it stars um, the sequel, which has been released, stars um, Billy Zane, who is returned to the homeland to make the film. Now, beyond this, the living dead have also slipped into other media. In addition to television and shows like um, Dead Set, as well as, as well as making appearances as guest monsters in shows like X-Files, Supernatural, Buffy, Smallville and so on, 
The zombie a la Romero and Italian horror, Italian zombie films as well, has been hugely successful in, in computer games, uh, with one of the most popular and earliest games being Resident Evil, um, originally called Biohazard, uh, which also spawned the Hollywood films with starring uh, Martin's girlfriend. Mila Hohovic. Thank you very much. Hohovic. Um, and there literally have been so many um, games. I don't know if many of you are into the games. Dead Space, Left for Dead, Dead Rising, Land of the Dead, based on the Romero. Uh, there's the Resident Evil games, as I mentioned, and so on. Not to be outdone, in 2005, Marvel Comics released the first in their Marvel Zombies crossover series, which saw the Marvel superheroes infected by the zombie virus. And these are hysterically funny, these comics. There's one scene... I think I've got a shot. There we go. Um, Somebody frisbees Captain America's um, shield over to Captain America and it slices the top of his head off. And you can actually see him here with the brain exposed. And there's... It just, it, it's this competition between zombie genre, superhero genre, um, and you've got scenes where uh, Spider-Man's being pathetic, you know, classic Peter Parker stuff, running around saying, I don't believe I ate Aunt May and I ate Mary Jane. And, and then finally the other zombie superheroes get fed up with him and say, look, you know, there's no one here amongst us who hasn't eaten one of our relatives. So there's that kind of uh, exchange that is never-ending source of, of uh, humour for me. <laughs> now, more recently in comics, in the Blackest Night series, the Green Lanterns have actually had to deal with the appearance of the Black Lantern, which builds um, its army of, of um, minions by raising the dead superheroes and making them prey on the living. And what I find interesting about this series is that it's, it's actually quite true to the, the uh, living dead tradition of, of Romero in that the living are just as problematic as the, the dead. Uh, and most of the living superheroes have relationship problems and, and there's a real sense of things gone wrong in that, the, you know, the live world um, that sort of, sort of sparks off um, the blackest night kind of horrors that emerge. And even Obama <laughs> appears in President Evil, um, another comic book that had a short run. Uh, and he actually, um, he actually appears with, uh, what's her name, Sarah Palin, um, who she, he's sort of trapped with her and they have to fend off zombies for, for um, a, couple of, a couple of episodes or whatever we call them in. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Now, in short, Romero's Night of the Living Dead then, uh, as well as the Italian uh, zombie films, I think, has played a crucial role in defining the, the zombie genre across a number of media and more recently, I think, it's also witnessed some very quirky and surprising offshoots that emphasise this idea of mainstreaming of um, the zombie tradition. Of course, most of us would know the zombie walk or shuffle, which now takes place in many cities across the world, including um, Melbourne. And more bizarre, I think, of all of them was the surprising appearance of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, um, when, which is an, another kind of hybrid that sees the Jane Austen classic merge with the zombie text of Seth Graham Smith. And just to give you a, a, an idea of what this is about, in case you, know, you don't know, you haven't heard about it, like, where have you been? This is the little blurb that... that comes at the back of the book. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is an expanded edition of the beloved Jane Austen novel featuring all new scenes of bone-crunching zombie mayhem. Feisty heroine Elizabeth Bennet, who has been trained along with her sisters by a Shaolin master in China, mm -hmm. is determined to wipe out the zombie menace 
but she's soon distracted by the arrival of the haughty and arrogant Mr. Darcy. <laughs> Complete with romance, heartbreak, sword fights, cannibalism and thousands of rotting corpses, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies transforms a masterpiece of world literature into something you'd actually want to read. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads me to another zombie variation that I'm sure many of you have been hanging out for me to mention. <laughs> Um, now, for those of you, who was here at the vampire talk, the True Blood talk? Mm-hmm. Well, not, not that. Oh, right, right. Anyway, I was trying to make a point um, in January about the differences between zombies and vampires and the fact that, you know, they're both dead, sort of living dead, if you like, and yet the vampire um, is... is I guess, linked with this idea of, you know, um, the erotics of the vampire in a very romantic kind of way. And as a result of that, what's happened is you, you have this um, sort of hugely popular subgenre of romance novels that have dominated, that have the, the vampire as the central character. So often you have human vampire sex in these novels. And in January, there, was, there were um, a couple of uh, zombie zombie romance novels were about to be released but they hadn't been released yet and here we see a couple of them and they've actually in two months there have been a whole spate of these things that if you go to the romance bookshop in um, across from JB on Lonsdale Street um, there's a whole sort of subsection now on zombie um, zombie romances one is Dead Town and the other is Beyond the Night (laughs) and I bet you're all waiting for me to read something and you know what? I'm not (laughs) because I don't want to be typecast. But the point I was trying to make about these things is that even in these examples, there is no sex between zombies and humans. Usually the zombie is a sidekick and the humans and other paranormals are actually fighting off zombies who've invaded you know, certain cities and, and what, what have you. And you know, in between they have lots of sex. Um, And I think the the point I was trying to make in in the January talk was that the zombie actually carries with him or her it um, a a sort of sensation that has nothing to do with romance and erotics. In fact, it's got to do with something that's quite um, the reverse of that. And that's what I want to focus the rest of the talk on, this idea of the zombie and its association with disgust. Um, Because for those of you who heard the last talk, the romance scene that I did make up It was pretty disgusting. (laughs) All right. Now, while these examples that I've just been going through reveal bizarre obsession that global culture seems to have with things living dead, this talk isn't concerned with providing an exhaustive account of, um, you know, the living dead across popular media. Now, rather, it's about laying out a context through which to address a particular sensation that was introduced by Romero in 1968 and which has remained consistent and, if anything, it's sort of amplified um, across the zombie genre um, since then, and namely it's this idea of the sensation of disgust. And I think that there's something quite particular um, to cinematic articulations of the living dead that highlights the experience of disgust in far, more, far more intensively, I think, than television has dealt with it or the comic books and even computer games have dealt with it. I think there's something about... Um, about the, the nature of you know, the rotting corpse and, and the kinds of violence that are performed on, on the body and, and you know, the eating of the corpse and so on in the cinema that fetishises those acts, but maybe that's something we can talk about um, later. Now, in her book, Material Image, Art and the Real in Film, uh, Bridget Puker, 
and that is for real. I have not made up that name for this talk. Points to the reciprocity that exists between the film, the film spectator and the image, a relationship she sees as generating an interface between representation and the real. Now, her interest is in what she calls the physiological perceptual, and she argues a case for the spectator's somatic responsiveness to the projected image. And I'm particularly interested in this in relation to um, these examples. Now, in this somatic responsiveness to what takes place on the screen, she stresses that the image itself is granted what she calls the semblance of materiality. In other words, it has the potential for appear- not literally appearing real, but to create the sensation um, in our senses you know, as if it's real. So affecting our senses in quite, our senses in quite real ways. Now, to stress her point, she turns to the horror film and in particular to the Living Dead films um, and those involving cannibalism because she says um, horrors, and this is a quote, imbrication, see, I wouldn't use a big word like that, imbrication of the (laughs) senses promotes and encourages a spectrum of spectatorial responses to the image, including tactile and gustatory experiences with the result that disgust is one of the central affects that horror films produce. Now, film theory has prioritised the role played by vision in the cinematic experience, and perhaps horror genre theorists have been um, even more guilty of this in sort of highlighting the role played by the eye, Um, especially because horror films like Peeping Tom, uh, Psycho, Demon, Suspiria, Halloween have, through the iconic image of the eye, um, quite deliberately asked their audience to ponder the pleasures of horror, that, you know, the pleasures that are in, inherent in horror and the pleasures in viewing um, horror, given horror is horrific. But <laughs> even when evoking or encouraging the visual, the contemporary horror film has also demanded of its spectator a kind of multi-sensory response to the world it con- conjures on screen. Now, before I continue um, discussing how, what, what form this takes, I'd like to show you a clip from Zombie 2, which uh, was direct, directed by Lucio Fulci and was released in 1979. It's known as a whole range of different titles, Zombie, Zombie Flesh Eaters, The Ultimate Zombie, Island of the Living Dead, and so on and so forth. Um, and just to set it up, basically, um, uh, this is a scene where one of the characters is trying to escape from a zombie Basically, <laughs> let's let's go. That's oh, oh, that's. For those of you who don't like gore, Turn what away. can I tell you?
definitely different to the porn thing I did last time. <laughs> All right, this entire scene plays on a key premise of horror, the interplay between wanting to look and not wanting to look. Inevitably, horror films punish their viewers, well, many horror films punish their viewers through looking um, in scenes like this. They actually play on the whole notion of, of looking quite, quite uh, reflexively. And introducing the device of the doubled audience, the events that take place on screen are mirrored reflexively in the real domain of the audience. But the mirroring, I think, doesn't only occur through imagery centred on the eye. Yes, the victim in Zombie 2 wants to block out um, while simultaneously wanting to see the zombie that's chasing her, and she's punished for this via damage that's done to her eye. But as Puker explains, the contemporary horror film, um, and she stresses the American horror film, but I think it also holds true of, of this Italian and European tradition of zombie films, and South American as well, um, supplements the activity of the eye with uh, that of touch, taste, and sometimes even smell, and I'd add sound as well, which plays a crucial role in this scene, and engages its spectator in a multi-sensory and aesthetic experience. Now, consider this scene that I just showed. As the woman's terror at the knowledge of, of what awaits her builds up, and as the zombie arms force her eye closer and closer to the sharp um, splinter of wood, our perception responds physiologically to what we see on screen. We see her eyes widening in terror. We see, and by extension feel, the tremor of her body, the tiny trickles of sweat that appear through the pores of her skin, um, also introduce a sense of taste and touch to our somatic experience. Um, but it's the moment of, of the, but the moment of pure disgust that really kicks our senses into gear uh, is when the eye is sort of plunged into the, the wooden stake. Um, and I think prior to that, we have a sort of... Th that sensation is kind of... Um, that sensation of disgust is, is paralleled by the crunching um, of the, the zombie hand in the doorway, which just sort of saying how that image turns to this kind of abstract um, focus on the door where you just don't know what's going on. And I think that actually highlights um, the horror. But it's also that close-up of the doorway is all about texture as well. Um, so as her eyes plunged into the wooden stake, we feel every squishy, repulsive, skin-crawling sensation that accompanies the ooze of damaged eye flesh that sinks deeply into her skull. The ooze of the eye suggests texture and tactility, but it's not the same surface sensation we associate with... Uh, hmm? Let's just ignore that bit. This, this jelly-like substance evokes a tactility we associate with food, its taste and smell. Um, and as the wooden stake is plunged into her body, finally causing death, we experience a different kind of invasion, we as spectators outside the screen. While not real, this event is materially brought to life for us through our sensory response to it. And while the victim is a recipient of horror, we are recipients of a horror that disgusts and even nauseates us. And some chickens can't even look at the screen. I looked. Yeah. <laughs> I think, however, that disgust, the disgust that we experience in scenes like this, um, which are very typical of the gore and splatter tradition of contemporary horror is qualitatively and conceptually very different to the kind of disgust that's provoked by scenes that deal specifically with zombie cannibalism. That's one of my friends. In his writings on disgust, which were published in the 1920s, the philosopher Aurel Colnai states that disgust is an aversive response that functions as one of the, as one of the body's protective mechanisms against objects of impu impurity and threat. And here he includes corpses, open wounds and creepy crawlies that are iconic images of horror. 
especially horror films. Now, unlike many other theorists concerned with um, affect and the senses, Colnay understands disgust as a highly cognitive emotion that conveys information about features of the outer world, which also reveals something about the complexities and shadows of our inner psychic life. He explains, and this is a quote, disgust helps to ensure the safety of the organism by inhibiting contact with what is foul, toxic, and thereby dangerous. But for all of its engagement of bodily responses, disgust is also an emotion that's at work in creating and sustaining our social and cultural reality. It helps us to grasp hierarchies of value, to cope with morally sensitive situations, and to maintain cultural order. Now, Colnay notes the borderline that disgust walks between life and death. Disgust records the transition states where the integrity of an organism begins to fall apart. For example, when a putrefying corpse manifests um, the change from that which was living and human to a mass of undifferentiated stinking ooze, um, which is a kind of transition that the female character um, goes through in, in that scene. The disgusting is, as he puts it, pregnant with death. This is made quite literal in the Living Dead films, where the horror associated with disgust comes not from the fear of contagion, but from the f- not only from the fear of contagion, sorry, but also from the fear of the contagion of death, um, and by extension, the co- total collapse of the social order. In her book *Phantasmagoria*, Marina Warner examines the nature and function of zombies. Now, for Warner, while manif- manifested differently in both the voodoo and the post-Romero film traditions. Zombies embody a vision of human existence that's about slavery, as Alex um, mentioned, a slavery that involves the theft of a soul. By aligning zombification with the, the voodoo tradition, the film's White Zombie of 1932 and I Walk With the Zombie of 43 assign the state of zombification to a master voodoo practitioner. In the post-Romero tradition, however, the living dead are often masterless and instead a product of faceless social infrastructure. And I think, again, you get this kind of doubling, this ambiguity that's typical of the post-Romero era where the living are like the dead and the dead are like the living. So you get this sort of crossing over. While the reanimation of the dead may be given a narrative rationale, exposure to uh, radiation, bioengineering, biochemical experimentation and so on, once the dead come to life... They're on their own and they plod around the world and seek out living flesh. Now, on a fundamental level, um, the the source of horror in these films is the literal contagion of death that's embodied in the figure of the zombie. Susan Miller understands disgust as fundamentally being about protecting and maintaining the self. In other words, the true defining characteristic of disgust is its protection of self or identity boundaries. And I think that's very true of many of these films. One of my favourite images of Bub, yeah. The intense disgust that envelops us in these films radiates around the acts of cannibalism that motivate the living dead. And this cannibalism becomes the ultimate symbol of nihilism and apocalyptic vision that these films are steeped in. Now, I'm going to give you a little... um, the rules of cannibalism here. Uh, This is the taxonomy of cannibalism. This includes endocannibalism, which refers to eating a member of one's own group, exocannibalism, indicating the consumption of outsiders, which was often seen as a kind of empowering thing, autocannibalism, which signified ingesting parts of one's own body. I can get into that one. (laughs) To this system, um, anthropologists have added the motives for each of these acts, Um, First of these is gastronomic cannibalism, where human flesh is eaten for its taste and food value. 
ritual or magical cannibalism, which involves an attempt to absorb the spiritual essence of the deceased. And um, there's a lot of sort of South American... Um, Anyway, I won't go into that. Survival cannibalism was the third, a normally, and this is normally prohibited behaviour that takes place during a crisis, e.g. a plane crash, no food to eat, and so on. The living dead partake in the worst possible combination. Um, in the, and what they partake in is the gastronomic endocannibalism. In other words, where human beings are eaten for their taste um, and to satiate hunger. So they're actually eating members of their own group, even though the one group is dead, the other living. Um, there are clear parallels set up between the two in most of these films. Now, as Puker explains, communication is eating. And this form of cannibalism signifies the ultimate collapse of language and society. So our discuss is both physical and moral in many of these films. It was, in other words, it will result in total chaos and the end of civilization, thus the apocalyptic overtone that we find. Now, what I find bizarre about almost everything I've read on the Living Dead films and cannibalism is the fact that it's the dead eating the living, not the other way around, which is what most... Um, writers talk about. Puka, for example, discusses cannibalism in Day of the Dead um, and compares it with Texas Chainsaw Massacre as if the two are the same and they're, they're totally different and their meaning is totally different. Now, this can, what we have in the Living Dead films is a kind of cannibal reversal um, and it speaks to the core of many of the, these films and the sense of moral and physical disgust. In a book called Disgust, the Gatekeeper Emotion, Susan Miller states the following... When we contemplate cannibalism, most of the emotion stirred is about the cannibal. The victim is simply meat. We think of cannibals' perverse appetite and the ability to rob the other of human identity and consume the human body as mere food. Our emotion about such ingestion is overwhelming. The revulsion is ultimately about the cannibal's ability to strip the other of human identity and make him or her meat. Now, the line between self and other is not only the boundary implicated, is, is not the only boundary implicated in disgust and horror. The line between life and death also comes into play, but in the case of the Living Dead films, death threatens to totally consume human life. And we, like the film's humans, must confront what uh, Bronislaw Molinowski calls the supreme and final crisis of life death. Mm. And on that up note, I'll just pass it on to Martin. Mm. <laughs> Okay, last but by no means least is our um, final panellist, Martin Pedler, who is a writer and pop culture critic. He's the film critic for Triple J's J-Mag, the comic book columnist for the literary site Bookslut, and maybe halfway through his PhD... We on... said maybe the last time yeah, I did no, this talk. Yeah, no, it's and... gone further maybe, but <laughs> his PhD on superhero stories at Melbourne University. And he recently won an Australian Film Critics Association Award. First of all, I would like to apologise for laughing every time Angela said puka because I am apparently five years old. Um, okay. Um, so here's the thing that first came to mind when I wanted to talk about zombies, which is zombies are like Barbie dolls. Um, their, only in, their only individuality comes through how they're dressed. They make such great um, antagonists for TV and movies because they don't need complicated backstories or characters. You know, astronaut Barbie, fashion designer Barbie, cheerleader zombie, biker zombie. That's all you need. Um, the sad fact is that even these great zombie Disney princesses don't actually know anymore which princess they're dressed up as. They're just wearing rags. It's only for our benefit. Um, 
So the film critic Pauline Kael, when was talking about the way the Nazis were used in Steven Spielberg movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, etc., and said that the Nazis were just evil clowns. They were basically comic relief more than actual villains, and even better, they were villains you didn't have to feel bad about murdering in horrible ways. So zombies are exactly the same. Um, it's why on a current show like the British um, high-concept comedy Being Human about a werewolf, a ghost and a vampire having quirky housemate adventures together, they don't have a quirky zombie housemate <laughs> as well because it's hard to be quirky and lovable when you have no personality at all. Um, so that's why there's that scene in every second zombie movie where your husband, your wife or your buddy gets bitten and you have to shoot them. And you can't do it because they're your husband, wife, or buddy. And someone tells you, no, man, there's nothing left of your husband, wife, buddy in there anymore. And you're like, yeah, I know. So you can finally pull the trigger. Um, you can pull the trigger with a clear conscience then, and it might even be fun. And it's that idea of fun that, for me, is the main difference between Romero's Dawn of the Dead and Zack Snyder's remake um, in the former the, there's a real pathos as well as the comedy that Sage talked about to these, to these zombies. There's a bit where the zombie's walking the wrong way down the escalator yeah, and it just breaks my heart. Yeah, um, in one scene, there's a survivor and a zombie having kind of a moment um, with a glass wall between them and they're sort of equals in this moment in this horribly fucked up post-apocalyptic world they've found themselves in. Um, we're meant to look down on the rednecks in this film who are enjoying the apocalypse and shooting zombies outside, whereas in Zack Snyder's remake, we are the rednecks and we're there for sight gags and slapstick and gore. So the fun and imagination then doesn't come in the individuality of zombies, but it comes in thinking of ways to kill them. Um, you know, what weapon, what body part, what location... And it was one of the many fun aspects of the recent Zombieland where they were handing out on-screen graphics for Zombie Kill of the Week for the most imaginative zombie kill. Um, it turns it into a game of Cluedo, except instead of, you know, Professor Plum in the library with the candlestick, it's the zombie hunter in the shopping mall with the banjo or the baseball bat or the gardening shears. Um, but when I, when I started to think about this talk, I turned, as I so often do, to the wit and wisdom of Xander Harris from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, that is Xander doing a Snoopy dance, those who don't know. So he points out that there's a difference between walking around drinking beer with your buddies dead and little bits swept up by the janitor dead. Um, others tonight have covered the sort of brainless, soulless and disgusting zombies, but I wanted to talk about the other kind of undead, the drinking beer with your buddies kind, zombies with personality. Um, so then the question is, what if there is something left of your loved one inside The Walking Dead? Um, and one of the first characters that came to mind on this subject isn't technically a zombie at all. Does anyone recognise this disclaimer that pops up at the end of a film I'm sure you have all seen? Mm. Anyone? Someone to shout it out? You can win a prize. Oh, yeah. We've got DVDs. American Werewolf in London, people. Um, in American Werewolf in London... The werewolf-mauled best friend who haunts him throughout is maybe technically a ghost as no one else sees him, 
But the way he um, rots throughout the film and refers to himself as one of the undead, I think links him to the zombie tradition. And he definitely retains his own personality. That's what makes his appearances so hilarious and disquieting throughout. Now, I know that I'm splattering my definitions a lot wider than the other speakers here tonight. So undead, walking dead, maybe just brain dead. And I know there'll be purists in the audience who think that zombies have to be dead technically, but I don't think it's ever been that simple. Um, I also want an answer to Frankenstein's monster, zombie or not. You can come and talk to me about this afterwards. Um, so anyway, every zombie fan knows that the true evil in zombie films is often the other humans, and the zombies are there as a catalyst to allow the humans to turn on each other. And the, the survivors of any kind of zombie crisis never survive unscathed. Um, take the long-running zombie comic The Walking Dead, um, which is, for my money, one of the best ongoing zombie stories out there, and it's the non-crappy version of a lot of what Romero's been trying to do in his crappy later films. Um, so, Diary of the Dead, Die Tribe. No, The Diary of the Dead, we'll talk about that momentarily. Um, AMC, the people behind Mad Men and Breaking Bad, are making The Walking Dead into their next ongoing TV series. So when writer Robert Kirkman um, points out in no uncertain terms that the title doesn't just refer to zombies, it's also referring to the survivors. And if you don't believe me, here is Rick the hero helpfully pointing out <laughs> that we are the walking dead and not the zombies. There is a letter in the back of one issue, hilariously, where someone writes in furious, saying, of course the humans aren't the walking dead, the zombies are the walking dead. They're zombies. So I don't think he quite grasped the metaphor that Kirkman was playing with here. Um, in Charlie Brooker's BBC zombie series Dead Set, as Sage pointed out, you've got the zombie apocalypse outside, but the contestants inside are the real monsters. Um, Big Brother has been the ultimate easy TV insult for a decade now, and many critics have said that Big Brother has devoured more than a few brains in its time. So this kind of high-concept zombie story seems to be everywhere, um, inserting zombies into Big Brother, into Jane Austen. There's a Sherlock Holmes versus zombie series that's running at the moment. Um, soon zombies will appear in every single work of literature that's dropped into the public domain because while zombies might be flesh-eating monsters, they respect copyright. I think that's important. <laughs> they don't download music either. Um, <laughs> but let's stop talking about rotting corpses for a minute and talk about some other kinds of the living dead. Um, Brian Fuller has created two separate TV series in the last decade featuring undead protagonists for TV. And the first is Dead Like Me, um, the story of George, a charmingly surly young woman who's killed when she's hit by a falling toilet seat from a space station. Um, she becomes undead, a grim reaper, someone who takes the souls of the living just before they die. What she doesn't realise, though, is that this job doesn't come with any perks, no pay, no nothing. It just means she gets to hang around on Earth a little bit longer. So she still has to keep her dead-end job. And um, this credit sequence shows Grim Reapers involved in all the usual boring office time killers. So it's not just the zombie apocalypse that can make humans into the walking dead. After all, what's the real difference between being dead and being trapped in a dead-end job? Maybe it's not as much as we think. And Romero certainly knew this too. That's why he used his less-than-subtle satire of trapping zombies in the mall in Dawn of the Dead so we could watch them staring at window displays and shuffling aimlessly through consumer culture. 
Um, this is actually what made Shaun of the Dead much more than just a cheap parody. It's actually astonishingly bleak because the opening premise is basically, what if your life is so depressing you don't notice when the zombie apocalypse occurs? <laughs> um, this idea of the zombie metaphor is mocked in a fantastic short story from a few years ago called These Zombies Are Not a Metaphor, <laughs> in which the narrator finds himself the only person who understands that there are real zombies outside and keeps trying to explain to his friends, you know, these zombies do not represent all that is evil in humankind. They do not represent anything except zombies. <laughs> um, anyway... Brian Fuller's follow-up series about the undead was the relentlessly cheery Pushing Daisies. Um, it's kind of a bizarro world sequel to Dead Like Me with the grumpy charms of George suddenly replaced, replaced by the sickly sweetness of Ned in the latter. Ned is a pie maker who discovers he can bring the dead back to life with his touch, but if he touches them again, they die for good. So after he raises both his childhood dog and childhood sweetheart, he can't touch either of them again, so there's a kind of bittersweet romance built into the premise. It's the kind of show that called its pilot episode Pilet, because it's about a pie maker. Yes, yes it did. Um, so... Ned's sweetheart in the show, Chuck, is now the undead, but she doesn't seem to mind too much. Um, I think it's interesting, though, that Ned doesn't like the word zombie because he says it's disrespectful. Um, stumbling around squawking for brains, that's not how they do. And undead, no one wants to be un-anything. Um, he actually says at one point, look, can't we just call them the alive again? Like, that sounds much nicer. Anyway, the fear of the undead a lot of the time isn't just a fear of being eaten alive. It's that zombies are somehow against nature, against the will of God, that once something is dead, there's something inherently wrong with the fact that it's moving again. Um, in the original Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that's really the horror of the monster. It's not that he's a disgusting beast. It's just that there's something wrong with, inherently wrong with giving him life again. So to counter this, both of these shows, Dead Like Me and Pushing Daisies, have very specific rules. George as a Grim Reaper is fulfilling some kind of cosmic role that she doesn't understand, but she still calls herself Fate's bitch. And um, the strict rules about Ned's powers, that if he raises someone for more than a minute, then someone else nearby will die to balance the scales, helps keep this sense of things being for nature and not against nature. Um, if you're walking and talking and feeling, though, what does it matter if you're alive or dead or, or somewhere between the two? Um, this is a French film called They Came Back. I'm not going to pronounce the French title after I butchered the name of a certain French theorist in our Vampires talk and was mocked for it. Um, it they Came Back basically asks the question of what if 10 years' worth of dead suddenly came back to life, walked out of the cemetery one day, no rotting flesh or brain-eating? exactly as you remember, what would you do? Well, of course, everyone freaks the fuck out because um, people have grieved, they've let go of these people, and now these people are back. So we've got experts in the show who um, are actually justifying treating these alive again differently, saying they're not really alive. They've just got the echoes of memories playing out, but they're not alive like you or me. Using the word echo lets me segue clunkily oh. into talking about one of the strangest TV shows of recent years, 
Joss Whedon's Dollhouse. So, okay, I know the characters on Dollhouse don't look anything like your typical zombies. In fact, they are actual promo shots from the show and not just my private FHM collection. (laughs) So, obviously, Dollhouse is still very interested in flesh as a zombie film. It's just a different kind of flesh on show. So... What Dollhouse brings back is what Alex has already discussed about zombies. Um, When you weren't afraid of being eaten by a zombie, but were afraid of becoming a zombie, one um, becoming a slave with no will of your own. So in this show, people have their personalities wiped and stored away on hard drives and are left in a kind of blank slate. It turns them into a kind of new age idiot in yoga gear who just wants to finger paint, eat healthy meals and have communal showers. It is frankly terrifying. Um, Then they have alternate personalities downloaded into them again to go on missions. So Echo, played by the frighteningly photogenic Eliza Dushku on the top there, finds that she can retain certain skills even as she's being wiped throughout different episodes. What this means is she's basically a much prettier version of this guy from Romero's Land of the Dead. Um, When Romero decided to give his own zombies a little more thought and agency, so they learn to communicate, learn to fire weapons and learn to make plans, Um, this character actually becomes a kind of leader of a zombie revolution against a gated community in the future. He's basically zombie Che Guevara. Well, (laughs) that's not technically true because... This is Zombie Che Guevara. Um, apparently quite a popular T-shirt online. And, you know, and people say that kids wear Che Guevara's image and don't know what it means. Please. Um, so another one of the fascinating things about Dollhouse is how it leapt at the end of its first season, headfirst into the future and into the apocalypse. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So it had had some good episodes, some bad episodes, but it had never seemed to sort of fulfil the really interesting stuff in its premise. And by suddenly jumping forward into a future where everyone had been mind-wiped and turned into these hyper-violent butchers a la 28 Days Later, it was almost like Joss Whedon was saying, see, our premise is interesting, fuck you. Um, But it really shows how zombies drag the apocalypse with them. That's the poster for Zombieland there as well, where the entire globe is suddenly exploding at the the end of the world. And um, it's one of the real pleasures of the zombie story, I think. Um, It taps into the same nihilistic fantasies that made audiences cheer when the White House was blown up in Independence Day. Um, It was such a simpler time back then. Um, And it's one of the things, too, that separates zombies from vampires, even though they are kind of the yin and yang of the undead. Um, If zombies are all about flesh, rotting flesh, falling apart, excretions, pus, intestines, and I could go on, um, vampires are the exact opposite. They're all about denying the body. They don't eat, they don't sleep, they don't sweat, they don't age, and that's what makes them perfect for a strange true love wait story like Twilight, because it's about the denial of the physical. Um, Vampires tend to be too beautiful and lonely to get together and cause an apocalypse, and there's often scenes in vampire stories where one vampire will tell off another vampire for being too obvious about their killing. It's kind of like an art movie snob telling another vampire off for watching Transformers 2. It's like, please, (laughs) it's just not done. Um, Something like Daybreakers, the recent Australian horror film, obviously breaks those rules. Um, 
I personally think there's something disquietingly apocalyptic about even the cheerfulness of pushing daisies. Mm. You can see the very crappy CGI they use for their establishing shot. And whenever I saw it, I just thought, what are they hiding under that <laughs> CGI? Is it just more undead? What's sitting underneath? Um, when the fan favourite character in Pushing Daisy of Olive says that the stages of death are something, 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 and acceptance, it just makes me think that she skipped denial on purpose. Um, Look, if Ned's not worried that his undead creations are going to start eating everything, then why does he run a pie shop? It's just so there's food on hand in case one of them turns. Um, Despite the big screen apocalypses, though, there is something that TV gets really right about apocalypse stories that movies don't. If the apocalypse happened tomorrow, we wouldn't get these godlike point of view shots like something like 2012 or even The Road recently. Um, we would be at home staring at our TVs, wondering what the hell was going on. So, in essence, we're not the audience watching Dead Set at Home flaunting our mastery of zombie conventions and laughing at the ignorant jerks inside the Big Brother house. We are the ignorant jerks inside the Big Brother house who have no idea what's really going on. Um, even at best, you might just see the final impact of a disaster. This is a page from Garth Ennis's Blacker Than Black Rage Zombie comic Crossed, which I don't know if anyone's been reading. It's basically, instead of becoming shambling walking dead, people become horrible, sadistic rapists and murderers, but stay smart. So it's a, it's a very different thing. But here, you just see bodies falling and splattering in a car park, and then a tiny plane up above. You don't know what happened on the plane, and you never will. We're never going to get the full story of an apocalypse. Now... It pains me to talk about it, but it looked like Romero was about to explore this kind of limited viewpoint apocalypse in his most recent film, Diary of the Dead. Um, you can see The Death of Death, which was the name of the movie in movie. Unfortunately, the film is god-awful. Um, and seeing Romero, whose early work I admire so much, trying to do a kind of scream-like meta-commentary on the nature of zombie films, I've described like watching your favourite uncle try and do a rap song at Christmas. It's embarrassing. Um, the best first-person zombie thing is probably not a cinematic show at all, but Ma Max Brooks' World War Z, which I don't know if people have read. It's kind of like a Ken Burns documentary, if it was a book, and about zombies. So it's first-person stories about the zombie apocalypse. Um, buried in the middle of World War Z, there's also a bizarre silver lining to the zombie apocalypse. And it's maybe the answer to this whole dead-end job equals dead-inside equation that Romero raised. Because once the zombie war comes and we have to start over, all that mindless consumption falls away. Um, there's no point in wandering the malls anymore. And there's a scene in the middle of World War Z where they've built a new enclave and are trying to start again. And one character talks about how he used to be in advertising and had this pointless job, but now he's planting things and building things. And it's like a Norman Rockwell painting. So there's hope after the apocalypse. I found some other happy endings too, because I thought after all of this talk of zombies, we might need them. But one involves me giving away the end of Dollhouse. So if anyone doesn't want to be spoiled, put your fingers in your ears for the next minute. Excellent. 
<laughs> Two. The very end. I don't end. want to know either, but yeah, just ignore me. I don't care because they're not zombies. Oh. <laughs> so. It begins. Represent. <laughs> there's nothing like your show being cancelled to give you a happy ending. Um, and it, after the show had limped on for a good season, longer than anyone was expecting, it caught up to this grim future. Um, and suddenly, and very uncharacteristically for Joss Whedon, fingers in ears, he gave everyone a happy ending, where suddenly new technology restored the souls, restored the minds of all the people thought brainwiped in this future. Um, so suddenly the people were turned back into the people they once were. So it turns out that maybe there was something left of your husband, wife, buddy in there after all, and you shouldn't have shot them at the beginning of this talk, you yeah. monsters. Um, you can... Listen. But finally, I wanted to leave the final word for someone else whose wisdom I turn to quite often, Fox Mulder from The X-Files. <laughs> In a late episode of The X-Files, he suggests that zombies are just eating people because that's the first thing they think to do. And that if we just gave them some time, they would eat, but then they're going to drink, and then they're going to dance oh. and make love. <laughs> and on that note, that's all I have. Thank, Thank you. you Oh, there's microphones kind of going around, so we should open up the Q&A session while we are still here and everyone's kind of... Yes? Who was our first fancy dancer winner? Someone answer the question. Someone just put up your hand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we have a question up. Is it a question or a DVD giveaway? <laughs> I was just wondering if you could play the reanimated video. <laughs> <laughs> it's been in our heads it's all afternoon. It's been in our head all night. <laughs> it's, on, it's on YouTube. If you look up Dr. Reanimator, Beyond Reanimator, you'll find it. <laughs> my work here is done. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Animate your feet, my friend. Other questions for the panel? Stuff that we've missed out, obscure films we haven't mentioned. Yes, there's one in the corner. Hi, I just wanted to um, ask what you think about the idea of maybe in future coming up with zombie cures. So eventually, isn't that the there premise in Twenty Eight? The, the second Twenty Eight Days Later, isn't there like 28 a weeks later. Twenty Eight Weeks Later? Isn't there like an idea that there's, there's I mean, the the, medic, the medical zombies actually something that we didn't touch on, and I think it's actually something quite interesting. This kind of, especially in the context, I guess, of kind of biological warfare, things like that, the kind of zombie epidemic. Mm. Um, somebody's touched on you touched on the SARS zombie. Mm. That's pretty. That's pretty hot. Mm. Um, but I think that there's enough traces of that that actually I think that it's something that we're not going to be seeing less of. But um, when a vampire is cured in some of the movies that have done that, like Near Dark, they get to come back beautiful and whole. If you're suddenly cured of being a zombie when you're just a torso, I imagine it's not going to be quite so pleasurable. No. Not for you, maybe. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Speak for yourself, bucko. <laughs> well, you know you want to be one of the living dead rather than a vampire. <laughs> the undead. I've chosen my team. Um, yes. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so my theory about zombies is that there are, I always thought of them as distinctly monsters of uh, pop culture, monsters of media, because they are so 
visual and I couldn't imagine them existing pre-cinematically, pre-television, pre-whatever. They exist in games and TVs, in film, but only very recently I think of them existing in, in uh, literature. But Alex, you kind of mentioned this, um, the idea of the ghoul, and so I thought you could flesh out Ah. I see what you, give that woman DVD. a DVD. Yeah, there you go. Um, that's up. <laughs> Any other parts just get a DVD. Ghouls are, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Ghouls certain... literature, yeah, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Martin kind of touched on this with this kind of broader idea of, of the undead and, and the, the, I don't want to offend anybody's personal beliefs here, but I think that we have to touch on this, the resurrection of the dead. Mm when we actually start talking more generally about the dead coming back to life, we have a really long history, <laughs> um, particularly in the West and particularly in visual cultures um, of that kind of You're stuff. dancing but... so daintily around saying Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, you know, the, um, the Mark Kermode um, debates about uh, the passion of the Christ. Is it a gore film? Is it a zombie film? Mm. Is, is, and he was like, actually, if you go through what defines a zombie film, passion of the Christ ticks every single box. Um, Whatever flies your kite, it's it's kind of out there and, and open. But ghouls are actually something really, um, really interesting. That they have been, they do have a really long history, um, but they have been adapted. And Mr. Sardonicus, I'm going to keep pushing this film because I think everybody alive should watch it. It's just such a wonderful film. Um, do you guys know who William Castle is? William Castle is fantastic. He's my spiritual father. Um, he made these wonderful films, these kind of crazy exploitation films that were really big on. Um, audience participation. So he did a film with Vincent Price, I think, called The Tingler. Um, and he actually put in the cinemas where this was showing, there were buzzers under the seats. So, and in Mr. Sardonicus, he has the punishment pole. So you get, um, that's the one, you get about sort of 10 minutes to the end and it, um, he comes on the screen and he says, okay, everybody, you've got your little thumbs up or thumbs down sign. Just hold it up and tell us if you want the guy to be okay or if you want the guy to not be okay. Um, fantastic. So he's one of the, um, that's the film I think that lives to me that's explicitly about ghouls. Um, but the idea of um, the, un, you know, the dead coming back to life and um, cannibalism, I mean, these are things that obviously have a really long, long history. Even if we stick with the kind of um, Roman Catholicism stuff, transubstantiation, mm-hmm. what is the Eucharist? I'm not mm-hmm. saying that Catholics in the room are cannibals. Take it easy. Or zombies. <laughs> but, I mean, there, there's, I mean, these are debates, and you can actually take these debates right back to kind of, you know, the Enlightenment. People were kind of, um, philosophers were sort of talking about, well, maybe, maybe Catholics are all cannibals. <laughs> that crazy time. Well, Jesus was the only person who came back from the dead but then wanted other people to eat his body. Think about it. <laughs> Thanks, Martin, for opening up that. <laughs> and that's why you're a Issue. sinner. <laughs> Hell. Other questions? I think we have one in the corner down here. Oh, and another one over there. Okay. Fine. You first, and then you. <laughs> I was wondering if you think that the Herschel Gordon Lewis film, The Thousand Maniacs, is uh, a zombie film. Mm-hmm. I don't think I do, but I'm not quite sure why. I certainly <laughs> think that Blood Feast opens up some... Um, I mean, you've got the literal kind of altar tabernacle stuff. So... To be honest, I think it depends what kind of zombie we're thinking about. I mean, I think of t- uh, 10,000 Maniacs, 2,000 Maniacs, what's it called? Is it 2,000? 1,000? The remake was 2,000, wasn't it? Oh, boy, vey. Um, I think it actually is a ghost film. 
but maybe I'm kind of sentimental. But Blood Feast, which um, for those of you who aren't aware, Herschel Gordon-Lewis was kind of the horror version of Russ Meyer. So if you can imagine um, faster pussycat, kill, kill, but less pussycats, more kill, killing. Um, <laughs> he's amazing. I'm, I'm very much a, a kind of Herschel loyalist. Um, but Blood Feast is considered to be the first kind of gore film. Um, it's, it's incredibly violent and incredibly awesome. Um, and that's about cannibalism, Blood Feast. So, yeah, it's interesting. Before we go to... Uh, there's another question down here. Can, can I ask Ange? Like, um, why do you think that Dollhouse isn't zombies? Because you were disagreeing with mine. Well, it's like Stepford Wives. Yeah, well, if you if if you argue that the characters that are um, I want to say injected, but anyway, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, yeah, the, they're zombies. Then we can argue that robots are zombies. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. It's like where do you where do you stop? And I mean, the function and the logic within films and within the media um, of of these creatures has a specific logic. Uh, and within that narrative universe, and I think um, in Dollhouse, it's about a different kind of logic that you ties it with science fiction. Where does that leave body snatchers? Yeah, body snatchers. Couldn't the technology of Dollhouse just be the pufferfish poison that Alex was mentioning in a new technological way that puts beautiful women into these dream states where they are? No, because you don't just have you don't have your... all the, the the iconography of the rotting flesh, and and I mean that is about signifying death, and, and that has, carries with it its own meaning for the other characters who are alive in, in the narrative. You're just okay. wrong. Admit <laughs> it. We had one over, we had one over here and one over here. This one was here first. Yes? Oh, just one that you put to the audience um, with Frankenstein. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't think of Frankenstein as a zombie because there's no chance of it spreading and having any zombie hordes. So the contagion... DVD for this man. Yeah, 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 DVD for that one, I think. I think. That's true. So that's, though, I don't know, if you're being really strict with that, that wouldn't count White Zombie or mm-hmm. the Zombie Masters. Mm-hmm. I mean... You do have zombie hordes when one master has many zombies, mm-hmm. which is something you don't see in Frankenstein, but I was wondering... And Frankenstein just... did want a mate-mate, so he did want to make more zombies. Mm. Um, that's, uh, no one's buying that argument. Yeah. I take that you, back. You actually have yeah. to give your DVD back. Like. <laughs> so yeah, I was just wondering whether the panel thought Frankenstein was a zombie, and mm-hmm. sort of if not, why not? He just, he just rolled in and... Yeah, I did. I think the contagion are... thing's actually a really yeah. good point. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And even in, um, even though I think it's incredibly twee and almost insufferable by the second series, like um, pushing daisies, mm. there's still this fear of touch. Mm. Like they have to go through this elaborate kind of ritual. Absolutely. I don't think of them as zombies, to be honest, but mm. you know that that touch will actually lead to like that fear of contagion. Mm. As so well. yes, Ned, Ned's touch is contagious yeah. in that it would take and life away from these undead yeah. creatures. Mm. It's true. There was another question. just in the middle here. There was just on the end there. Mm. Hi, I was just wondering, given the you know the Nazis and zombies history goes, there's always one. (laughs) I was actually wondering about the other, you know, limitable source of American anxiety, which is the communists. Like, was there a kind of communist zombie Mm. film? And just kind of something that occurs to me is that, in some ways, the killer zombie, or not the killer zombie, but the killer robot or the killer kind of like the Terminator kind of thing, might kind of stand in for the. The communists in a in a kind of similar way, like kind of evacuate a body evacuated of any kind of soul, but still kind of. Well, funnily enough, I mean, I would tie that into body snatchers. Hmm. Um, I think the body snatcher mythology is a lot closer than that kind of robot hmm. kind of. So I'm kind of with Ange on, on that because hmm. it does open up. 
Mm. If we open up Dollhouse, then we have to seriously think about opening up something like Stepford Wives and things yeah. like that. And which goes back but to my uh, zombies just mechanic. Like, yeah, exactly when you go through these kind of motions, yep. there's a mechanism, but you know, is it is it technological or is it that is it a more kind of human yep. kind of? Although Dollhouse thing? does end with Contagion, where the technology spreads and suddenly starts to take over like the planet's you population. You said as a spoiler. Yeah, no, no, that's not, okay. That's the end of season one. That's fine. Um, that's cool. But cool, Body Snatchers, right? I'm not so sure about. And certainly the first Body Snatcher film is dealing really explicitly with this kind of, um, that kind of 50s, reds under the beds kind of stuff. I'm not saying that Body Snatchers are zombies, but I think they may be, maybe go to the same parties. They're kind of, <laughs> they've got like a lot of friends on Facebook in common. That's, that's what I'm just putting out there. It's, a, it's an interesting, I mean, it, again, it comes back to this technicality of where do zombies end and and other things oh, start. But the Terminator is actually an interesting example because his body Falling does... Falling apart. Yeah, you know, the flesh starts to fall apart and, mm-hmm. and you get that exposure of the, mm. the mechanics underneath him. Mm. I think we have I another was, question. That the, um, it's the Charlton Heston um, version of I Am Legend. Mm. Omega, Omega Man. Man. <laughs> they're, not, they're not vampires in that. They're more like zombies. Yeah. yeah. The subtext of that is very much common. But they're thinkers. Yeah, they are. Mm. And they, you know, they ponder the nature of human life and what what humanity did that was wrong in the first the first run through, uh, and they see themselves as superior. But then there's the Last Man on Earth, the Vincent Price, the Vincent yeah. Price adaptation of the same story, incredibly low budget and incredibly strange version, which yeah. isn't sort of moves away from that thinking stuff again, and it's much more a zombie film. Mm. Roger Corman also did, did the Last Woman on Earth, which is one of the weirdest films I've ever seen. Mm. I just wanted to add that. Okay, it's alright. Um, we had a question at the back. Yeah, and there's another one. Down. Sorry, it's just going to get back to maybe the physical world, which it sort of exists in, but it's also bent around. That um, the, the contagion is contained therein, but is there any examples where you've got the symptoms, you lose the symptoms, it goes away, it's still there, but it comes back, reverts mm. back? Um. Like zombie carriers? Of... Mm. Mm. Like just... The closest I can think is 28 weeks later. Yeah. Um, where there are, there are some individuals who don't get the, the virus that is the zombie virus. Can anybody virus. else think of anything like that? Yeah, can anybody be missing something? They live. Is she the crazy punky? Yeah. <laughs> That's actually um, made by Brian Yuzna, who did the uh, Dr. Reanimator clip. Wow. Uh, well, in that case, I think that man deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for tying them back in. He did the movie. Yep. Um, back to the dollhouse. <laughs> um, I'm so sorry. As far as the dolls being um, zombies, how closely does that tie into the voodoo idea? Because you're saying how there's two types of zombies in voodoo mm. culture, bodies without souls and souls without bodies. Mm. How well do the dolls tie into the idea of a body without a soul? Because that's essentially what's Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, and even just mm. the way that you worded that, it's kind of just voodoo doll. Like, what's mm. a voodoo doll? Something that you can control. Um, it's a really good point. But that opens up again. So if we, um, if we didn't have that 68 shift, so if we actually didn't have... If Night of the Living Dead never existed, I think that our idea of what zombies are in terms of the kind of popular... Mm kind of imagination would actually be, we'd probably be a lot more open mm. to saying that because it would be kind of more closely linked to this idea 
um, these kind of earlier ideas. But unfortunately, with that, we would also have to accept the really shitty racism that is kind of um, that accompanies that. Mm. Although interestingly, with dollhouse, it's kind of a reversal of that voodoo tradition because the dolls are actually stuffed with. A personality, mm. like when they are, you know, when they're under the control of the corporation mm. or, or mm. you know, the sh shaman or priest or whatever figure that, like, that goes back, mm. you know, that's actually inserting a personality in mm. there. It's actually, they're only autonomous when they're actually in this blank kind mm. of zombie-like state, yeah. which is walking around in yoga pants. Yeah, you with that. your mouth open. <laughs> yeah. I think they're still human in that state, though. You, it's still bad to kill them when they're blank. Yeah. But maybe that's because there's always the threat that they'll have their souls put back in. Whereas if they were gone forever, maybe it would be acceptable to murder them in amusing ways, a la Zombieland. I'm not sure. But that's where they do belong more to that pre-68 zombie tradition, I think. Yeah. That idea of the souls, the well, souls taken. I mean, I would say that when we're talking about zombies, um, we actually are talking about two separate things. I yeah. think that that yeah, 68 moment time. cannot be underestimated in that if you're talking about zombies before that moment talking about something really, really different. But I think, yeah, I think that um, even, again, Stepford Wives, I think, mm. um, feeds into that, that we would actually be able to talk about them in relation to that kind of pre-68 moment. Mm. Anna? Um, you've spoken about uh, zombies going from the slavery style through to more the horror. Um, and I guess you've made a lot of references against, uh, I guess, examples against uh, vampires quite often. Um, with, I guess, zombies becoming quite popular a lot in the last couple of years, probably in excess of movies, um, more mainstream. Do you feel that zombies will head the way that vampires have headed in the last couple with, uh, I guess, with the zombies kind of becoming um, flaccid or sterile <laughs> in the way of Twilight and Vampire Diaries? Mm. Zombies that sparkle. Yeah. Yeah. This is your moment to get the Cooper Chopper in there. The... Last time we did this panel, we were trying to guess what would be the next big creature. And I think we decided mummies were the most interesting. I have been trying to get people to embrace the Mexican goat sucker, the chupacabra, but I don't think it's going to have a Twilight-esque romance coming up anytime soon. Um, I mean, I guess, the, like, like Martin said, that vampires and zombies in many ways are kind of flip sides of the same thing. Um, mm. I... I don't know, I can't speak for other people. I, I, I think that everybody's kind of intuitively on one side or the other. I don't know. I don't know whether you can swing. Is that? But you are much more of a... You think zombies have had much better films than vampires have had films, right? Yeah. Is, vampires just remind me of the kind of cool goth kids at high school, like, <laughs> all pouting around and hitting on each other and being... <laughs> Outstandingly dull, mm -hmm. and and the zombies are like, let's look at Messi and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> who, who do you want to hang out with? Like, no. who do, I'm going to go with the messy, crazy man with, with his foot in his mouth. <laughs> like, come on, what about the Nosferatu tradition and Thirty mm. Days of Yeah, Night like I'm not totally, totally anti-vampire. I think I'm there's not... there's room in the world for both of them. Yeah, I think we need to have quite a liberalist kind of horror agenda, yeah. each to their kind of own. No. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, okay, so Romero's pretty obvious with the uh, metaphors that he's trying to put forward. What I'm interested in, though, is you take a look at Ben from the original. He wasn't meant to be black, mm. um, making that a very interesting film in of itself. It was the first yep. film ever to pass a, a black yeah. guy who race didn't matter. In retrospect, though, it becomes very important 
the same thing can be said for a lot of, particularly horror cinema, which makes it so interesting. Mm. Zombie films now, the rages, the speed ones, the massive excessive violence with the MTV video cuts with the way they kill, just thoughts on what that might say, what people might 20 years from now say about that, if anyone has any ideas. Stop, they should have stopped giving Romero money, I think is the first <laughs> thing that people will say 20 years from now. To his credit, Romero did joke in an interview recently when asked about the fast zombie thing. And he was like, I just don't understand. It seems like the first thing they did when they climbed out of their grave was hit the gym, which I did think was a good line. Um, but there is something, I think, I don't know, there is something really nice about the fact that the Dawn of the Dead racial stuff wasn't planned. Mm. And now when Romero is trying so hard to make political points in these later ones, I don't know if someone wants to try and defend Diary of the Dead. Get out. No. But, um, Look, there's two scenes. Okay. <laughs> the Amish guy is good. But it really, it seems so awful to, now that they're, they're trying to raise politics to the surface so intentionally. Hmm. Uh, that had a bit more post-apocalyptic charm, but you're right, it was still quite overt. I think that's cheesy I mean, fun, but yeah. Mm. I think it's one of the broader um, challenges of, of certainly a film history. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not anything beyond that, but I would, I would suggest that maybe all history is that it's really hard to look objectively mm. at the moment that you're in. So I actually suspect that this... No, I actually, I'm, I'm totally with you. I actually think it's a really interesting perspective to actually think about, like, what will people say about Twilight in 20 years? What will mm. people say... Um, and it's really interesting looking back at kind of, um, kind of you know, looking back at an 80s horror film and kind of 90s stuff and kind of thinking, wow, did nobody realise? And I think we've all found ourselves saying that with just watching a film and saying, what, what was going on? Mm. Like, how did this happen? What is the world that this was made into? Mm. And, so, I mean, and sometimes, sorry, so sometimes it can just be, you know, strategic moves where you've got action, action cinema aesthetics in, impacting yeah. on, you know, the zombie film, mm. the living dead films and you want to sort of emphasise the action elements and speed up your film sort of thing. Um, and then they become part of the convention of, of that, that mm. tradition that you can choose or not choose depending on, on what you... And then video games, of course, have had a huge impact on, on the look of, of these films as well. Yeah. And zombie films have... I mean, for me, zombie films have also been about that question of ethics, particularly in a kind of social sense. So I, I'm actually quite fond of the rage-filled kind of zombie that, that brings up this question particularly in like films like 28 Days Later so of bioethics and what's kind of how the body's kind of you know mutating or kind of morphing in that larger social sense so people seem to have come to terms with the rage zombies yeah. I remember much like we talked about last time people being furious about sparkling vampires because real vampires don't sparkle <laughs> When 28 Days Later came out, I do remember a lot of very angry internet posts yeah. about how real zombies don't run. So I guess it's just what you get used to as time passes. Mm. Questions? Uh, just, um, hi kids. Uh, I just want to ask, uh, sort of follow on from that comment, um, there is always that thing about if you're... Oh, awesome. <laughs> um, there's always if you're afraid of zombie. <laughs> if you're afraid of one thing you, it's usually another thing as well and so when you look at the last sort of 15 years the thing that features really really heavily is the changing city and so the key moment in uh, 28 days later is actually in the underpass outside mm. of London mm. where you see the shadows of the zombies and you're like is that a football hooligan crowd mm. or are those zombies mm. are you not sure and Land of the Dead plays on that mm. a little, in a little while. The new Dawn of the Dead is not just about the mall, but about people from the city coming in. Mm. So there's all this stuff about more travel, but more security. Mm. So, it's all, so zombies are like, 
uh, sort of intensely sort of urban now. And so yeah. I'm really into uh, the zombie films I've watched recently. I really like have been the ones that are not in a city at all. The sort of open fields again, yeah. mm. which is where where mm. we stood off. So that's what I was sort of thinking mm. the last sort of 10, 15 years of zombie films. In the Greek mm. one, the, the um, evil, the zombie infestation takes place in a soccer match, which is very Greek. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think we've got time for a few more. Anna, yeah. Oh. There's Bruce LaBruce's film, yes. L.A. Zombie. Yeah. When is that coming to Australia? Well, I hope so. I played it myths. Did it play myths last year? Is that the, the Otto? Otto? Oh, well, Otto's the first one. And it did play here, what, two myths ago? Yeah. Um, so hopefully we're getting LA Zombie, although word is, yes, this is this is quite the pornographic. Hard. Yeah. Hardcore. So looking at that, um, would maybe gay culture could be the new <coughs> zombie threat? Well, I mean... Because I, it's just mirroring, you know, um, yeah. what he's turning to, yeah. Bruce LaBruce and... I mean, I think it's really interesting that he is one of the few directors, I mean, outside of Angela's career as a, a future kind of erotic zombie fiction kind of <laughs> star that, that I know of, that, um, and the ones that you were talking about, like Porn and Holocaust, that deliberately mashes that kind of eroticism, regardless whether it's gay, straight, whatever, to the figure of the, of the zombie. Um, so, I mean, for me, that's interesting in its own right. But he's, and he's also, a, you know, doing that outs, outside mainstream on often quite low-budget aesthetics, mm. although if you want to hear LA Zombies, much more kind of high profile. But how widely that gets seen um, is another thing, or mm. whether that picks, to, off, um, picks up. Yeah. Um, I mean, with that, we're obviously dealing with kind of male, gay, kind of zombie aesthetic, but it's really interesting to bounce that off what we see, and I guess is what you were doing last time, but the kind of the token that real cliche of the uh, lesbian vampire, mm. like kind of mm. boob mm. jobs with blonde perms mm. kind of going for it. It's like a really, really different aesthetic yeah. and I'd, I'd love to see maybe them swap over. Mm -hmm. Like, that would be kind of fun. Do you mean like in an rsv.com kind of way? <laughs> <or> like... <laughs> exactly the way. You and your happy endings. Yeah. yeah, enough with the happy endings. So we probably have time for one more question and before the one question finishes... Can I ask that everyone, before they excitedly run out, um, I've left feedback forms on the seat, and I know it's boring to do, but <laughs> I might be able to entice you to fill them in if you know that there are copies of uh, Dead Set to win. So if you would like to win one, please fill in your form and put your email address on there so I can get in touch with you to find your address to send. So lucky, There's somebody up the back. Lost, uh, somebody up the back has been waiting for a while. Oh, sorry, two, two more then, two more. Okay. I just want to point out, with Marvel Zombies, in the later series, um, while there wasn't a cure for mm. the zombies, they kind of learnt to yeah. survive being a zombie, so they yeah. went through the universe and ate everybody. Yeah. Well, there's that fantastic um, moment where the Hulk, as the Hulk, not Bruce Banner, eats Galactus. Um, and, and then he reverts back to Bruce Banner and his stomach can't take the, the hugeness of you know, Galactus and it just explodes. But you're right, that, that's where you get that kind of struggle between superhero genre mm. and, and um, the living dead idea. Uh, and they do, they do retain their identity. And it's also, maybe it's not about a cure, it's just about teaching zombies self-control. You know, even the end of Shaun of the Dead, he's... He's yeah, sitting with his up. friend in the shed and yeah. they're kind of, he kind of playfully tries to bite him. He's like, hey man, that's not cool. But it Land, seems like they're going to work Land something out. Land of the out. Dead has that as well, mm. that really amazing yeah. sequence where they're kind of training the guy. Mm. It's mm. quite remarkable. Mm. 
Um, down the front. And, and it's been waiting for forever. 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 Hello. Um, I just wanted to pose a question to the panel. Um, what kind of zombies do you prefer? Do you prefer fast zombies or slow zombies? Mm. I prefer Italian zombies. <laughs> <laughs> Super Mario zombies, they're for me. Mm, yep. Angela, you're the stickler for zombie rules. I, I'm, I'm, within the, the, the rules, I, just, I can take both of them as long as they're done well. Yeah, like the the twenty eight the fast zombies of the twenty eight days later, twenty eight weeks later, scared the crap out of me. So I thought, hey, good move. Mm. But I also like the there's, there's something really creepy about the slow plodding mm. zombie as well. Mm. I can do both as well. However, I am particularly fond of the beautiful blonde kind of zombie, maybe because I would like to be one, just wandering around in a night night mm. white nightgown, and like you know, um, yeah, yeah, the Val Luton yeah. kind of style. And without the, slow, without the slow zombies, you wouldn't have the great scenes at the beginning of Zombieland where he's talking about the importance of cardio and whenever he just yeah. sort of runs in circles constantly because <laughs> he knows they won't be able to catch up. And there was somebody at the front there who's had their the finger up. Right. Um, you mentioned the racist politics of zombies. I was wondering if you had anything to say about the gender politics because there was lots of imagery of um, strange, cruel men controlling beautiful, helpless women and that extends to Dollhouse and I guess it's, if you're going to include... It's actually a really, really interesting question and by that I mean I find it really, really interesting so maybe you guys don't but the two people um, that I talked about, Wade Davis and Zora, Zora Neale Hurston, they both claimed that they'd met zombies, or they both did meet zombies, I don't doubt them, um, when they were doing their research. And uh, Hurston met a woman called Felicia. Literally, this woman just, she died, everybody buried her, and then she just woke up one day and just kind of was walking down the street. Everybody's like, wow, that would be her. Uh, Wade Davis um, and those of you who have seen Serpent of the Rainbow know that he met a woman called Narcissa. Um, and both of them talk about, both Davis and uh, Hurston talk about you turn somebody into a zombie um, as a kind of, almost as like a kind of social control. Mm. Like, in those two cases, they were both women that were just a little bit out of control. Mm. Um, so rather than what we see with the early zombie films, and it's a way to actually kind of get sexy women to do what you want. Um, come to me, my beautiful, mm. blonde, high-cheeked, boned sleepwalker. Mm. It's actually... Lady, you're a little bit out of control, so we're just gonna yeah. just gonna fool you up with a puff of puffer fish. Mm. Um, I don't know, to be honest. I don't know, and I, I'm also very sceptical that when you have um, American academics or you know, kind of Western academics studying a kind of um, indigenous phenomenon like that, we have to take a pinch of salt with that. So I certainly wouldn't be prepared. And neither of them say, well, this is only you know, in in uh, voodoo traditions, you only make women. Zombies, but it's it's kind of curious. I thought that both of them actually used those examples about these women that were kind of wild, um, and I mean, psychiatrists and um, doctors. I mean, people have really kind of discredited the idea that these actually are the living dead. As I said, that it's you know, there's actually kind of a lot of people. Um, a lot of cases are actually just really severe mental illness. But in um, pop culture, is there any like tradition of men being controlled in that uh, earlier zombie kind of? Well, there wasn't that many films. There actually just wasn't that yeah. many films. Um, and then post-68, everyone's kind of... Yeah. Really dead. I mean, there's almost like... A, and I guess that kind of ties in this interesting kind of porn stuff, but um, the issue of gender and zombie bodies and this issue of disgust, that, you know, if there's bodies without souls, where does gender fit into that? Mm. 
Um, I mean, you don't necessarily post 68 see a topless zombie woman and say, you know, because of this issue. We didn't discuss zombie strippers from 2008 either tonight, which that's that's all I'm going to say about it. And (laughs) the whole morality of the zombie that's typical of zombie films post-68 is present in that film, but you've got this weird kind of logic that's set up where the strippers have the moral... High ground, and then you've got the prostitutes outside the strip joint who are all attacked by the living dead. Mm. Um, so in the end, it's the strippers who survive, mm. even though there is a zombie prostitute that the film ends with, who is still a prostitute. Oh, you ruined it! Sorry, <laughs> spoilers, everybody. Can I just mention there's one? Um, we we're talking about how far this goes back. Um, old Norse mythology believed that. The ability of you know, the living dead was kind of a family tradition. So there were certain families that passed on genetically the the, um, the capacity to die and come back to life. And what they used to do, if they thought somebody would come back to life, they'd chop off their nose and shove it up their ass, so that every time they tried to get up, um, they'd walk up their own ass. <laughs> thank you, oh, thank you, very Angela much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you to our zombie panel members, Martin, Angela, Alex and our chair, Sage, to Simon up in the bio box and everyone for coming this evening. Thank you so much.